in Genesis this morning. Uh, before we start into that, though, um, I want to acknowledge some of our guests here this morning that we didn't get to recognize earlier. Um, we have a family here all the way from France, here with Samantha. Let's give them a hand. We are so glad that they're here. <clears throat> Lorenzo, you thought you were coming a long way for church. How about that? France, huh? So, hey, and just uh, proof that, you know, these cards are important, uh, I want to welcome my friend Xavier, who works at Forgotten Angels. We gave him one of these cards, and he's here this morning. Give him a hand. We're glad that he's here. All right. So, we are in Genesis. We're going to finish chapter 3 and move into um, chapter 4. Andre, where's Andre? Did he leave? Oh, he's our reader this morning. Okay. Um, well, to wait or not to wait? I think I need to move forward. If he walks in, I'll have him come up and finish, okay? All right. So let's read God's Word this morning. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments, skins, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and, out of the, and at the east of the garden, Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the life of the tree of life. Now, Adam, Andre, come on up here. I'm going to let you take over here in just a second. You're not getting off that easy. All right, and Andre will use this microphone right here. That works. How are you this morning, Melina? Good. This is Andre's better half right here. I can't get this to let go. There you go. How are you, brother? Hey, it's good to see you. All right. And see. you can right on the screen right there. It's all yours. All right. Now, Adam knew his wife. I'm sorry. Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was the keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive the brother, your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, you shall no longer yield its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. <clears throat> 
Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should, be, should attack him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Andre. Appreciate it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that we are not just sharing opinions here this morning. We are studying the very God-breathed, inspired word of God that you've written for us to understand, to know, to learn from, and most importantly, to know you better. So Father, I just pray this morning you'd open our eyes so that we can see what it is you want us to know this morning from your word. And we give you all the praise. And everybody said, Amen. So, long time ago, I was approximately 25 years old. We had just bought a house in Spring, Texas. And I was with my son, Adrian, who was about four years old, maybe five. And he's helping me in the garage as we're cleaning. And so, I literally opened the door to go into the kitchen to grab a broom, and I come out, and Adrian is not there. And I walk out the front of the garage. I look down this end of the street to the cul-de-sac. He's not there. I look this way down this street. He's not there. I start yelling, Adrian, Adrian. I'm looking all around, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I got on my bicycle, and I rode as fast as I can through the whole neighborhood. Tears are flooding my eyes. This is not just a matter of two minutes, three minutes. This goes on for 20 minutes, and I cannot find my four-year-old son. And it was like we were just having a great time in the garage, playing together and cleaning the garage together, and now all of a sudden my world is like falling apart, like someone has stolen my son. And I am like praying, God, please, no, please don't let this happen. Please, uh, let's go back to the side thing. Lord, please, you know, and I, I mean, everything went from great to horrible that fast. And sure enough, I started knocking on doors, and I knocked on my next door neighbor's door, and she goes, oh yeah, Adrian's in here. So what had happened is when I went inside, her cat ran by, he saw the cat, chased her, and, and then the cat was running home, and so she opened the door and let Isaiah, I mean, Adrian come in and play with the cat, which... She was a single lady with no kids. Most parents would not do that without letting your parent know, okay? But it's funny how things went from so great to so bad so fast. And that is how Adam and Eve feel right now. They were in paradise. The world couldn't have been any better, and now it couldn't be any worse. And, and, and what we're going to learn is some lessons from that as how we're supposed to respond to these things. So last week, I appreciate Pastor Stan preaching from Genesis 3. I'm not going to reteach it, but I want to use some of it as background because you have to understand last week to understand today. So last week, Satan said, did God actually say, and what did he cause Eve to do? To doubt God's word, which doubting God's word means also doubting God's character. Have you ever told somebody something and they're like, really, is that true? No, I'm, I'm just lying. <laughs> what, what, why, why would you ask me? I mean, when, when you question someone's statement, you, it's hard to do without also not questioning their character. Um, Matt, can you have someone fix this monitor, unplug it? It's making all kinds of noise over here. Anyway, they also went from 
doubting God's word to distorting God's word. Eve quotes it back to him and says, neither shall you touch it. Well, did God say you can't touch the tree? No, he didn't say that at all. In fact, he said you should take care of all the trees of the garden. And, and that would require that tree being taken care of. So maybe they were supposed to touch it, but people distort God's word. And then they went from there to disputing God's word. Satan goes, no, God's just flat lying to you. You will not die. God's just trying to withhold things from you. And you know, when we purposely, presumptuously, willfully sin, that's what we're thinking. I know God said I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because God somehow doesn't want me to have fun or do what I want to do. And so I know better than God. And so Satan starts disputing God's word. And then they go from disputing God's word to disparaging God's word. And that's where Satan goes into the whole thing about, well, God just knows that you know, you'll become like him. And he, well, now he's gone from doubting God's word to disparaging God's character. And then, they, then she, as, out of all those first five steps, she chooses to disobey God's word. And so she took of the fruit. And then she doesn't just, isn't just satisfied with her sinning against God. What does she do? She gave it to her husband with her. Hey, why don't you sin with me? Isn't it interesting how sin loves company? How people, nobody wants to party alone. Nobody wants to get drunk alone. They're like, hey, come on with me. Oh, come on, try it. Oh, come on. It only wants, it won't hurt you. And they encourage other people to sin. It's funny how that works that way. But when, we, when it comes to doing good, well, I just want to mind my own business. There's no pressure on anybody to do what I'm doing. If I, hey, I'm going to church, but I don't want to impose my views on somebody else. But then when people do wrong, they want to impose their views on everybody. It's crazy how that works. So then... We saw last week the consequences of sin. He said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And so Adam and Eve probably should have died physically, but they didn't. But how did they die? They died spiritually because they were separated from God. Death means separation. When someone dies physically, their body and their soul separate. When a marriage dies, a man and a woman separate. And when you die, when it dies spiritually, God and man are now separate. And so the next thing we saw was there was the causes of sin and the curses of sin. And Brother Stan went through really well the six different curses. We won't go through all of those this morning. But now they're cursed. And then finally there's a covering for sin. And we'll go into more detail about that this morning. So today I want to divide the, this passage up into four categories. First of all, there's the respect for Eve. And then there's the redemption for sinners. And then there's the removal from the garden. And finally, the fourth point where we'll spend most of our time, responding to rebellion. Specifically, Cain's rebellion. And so, it says the man called his wife's name Eve. Now, prior to that, who did Adam name? All the animals. But for woman, he just called her woman. Which, again... A tiger, that's what a tiger is. If you named a tiger Lily, then great. You know, that, that's her specific name. But he had not given a personal name to Eve yet. And Eve at this point means life giver because she was the one to be the, the mother of all living. So the mother of all living, a lot of people read that and say, oh, see, there's other people already alive on the planet, you know, and they try to squeeze in gap theory and evolution, all that stuff. Oh, thank you, Nate. All right, good deal. I can feel like an evangelist now. All right. So some people read that phrase, mother of all living, as in, look, see, there's other people already alive, you know, and that proves evolution and things like that. No, in the Hebrew language, it's saying 
that's in potential. She will be the mother of all living, which is a pretty great title. And so it's not just genetically, though. Spiritually, Eve will be the mother of all living because through her, the Messiah would come. The first prophecy in the Bible of Jesus talking about how a man will come who will be born of a woman only, the virgin birth, and he will crush the head of the serpent. So Eve gets to be the one to start that messianic lineage. So up to this point, Adam saw the woman for what she was, a wife, a helper, a partner. But after this prophecy, after the promise of Messiah through her, Adam now sees Eve for who she is, the life giver. You see the difference there? You see, when we see God at work in our spouse, for those of you who are married, it takes our relationship to a higher level. If you see your spouse as, oh, just a provider, someone to be there with, you know, a partner for different things like that. But when you see and you begin to pray for God to do something in their life and you see that, you're talking about taking your marriage to a much higher level. And that's what happened to Adam. He saw her in her role as helper, provider. And, and, but now he sees, wait a minute, God is going to use this woman to bring salvation to the whole planet. And that was what made the difference in his perspective on her and his respect for Eve. So then we move to the second point. There's redemption for sinners. Redemption for sinners. It's interesting. If you read your Bible carefully, you will notice that sometimes it says the Lord. Sometimes it says God. And sometimes it says Lord God. And sometimes Lord will be an all uppercase and God upper lower. And then sometimes it'll be Lord upper lowercase and God all uppercase. And that's like kind of code for, for these falling titles of God. There's lots of names of God. We're not going to go through all of them this morning. But as far as in Genesis, we see in the beginning the Lord, which is Yahweh, which is the personal name that Jews would not say or pronounce. It's a, it means a self-existent one. And by the way, this is the one that Jesus used and Mo, later, but Moses would use when he saw God in the burning bush. And God is telling him, hey, go back to Egypt and set my people free. And he said, well, who should I say is sending me? He says, I am that I am has sent you. Which means, I am. I just exist. I, there's no before me. There's no after me. I don't need anything. I'm self-existent. And then Jesus, seven times in the New Testament, would say, I am. Showing that he was the one in the burning bush. He was the creator. So Moses has seen the burning bush. And now he's writing Genesis. And so he chooses to use this word Lord right here. And then also there's Lord lowercase, which is Adonai. And it's, the, it's more of a title than a personal name. It means the true God. And then you see God, Elohim, which this is what's used in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Okay, And that, again, that's the title, the one true God created the heavens and earth. And then you see this combination right here, the Lord God. In other words, the true personal God, Yahweh, Yahweh, is the one that's acting here. You see, in creation, he, the name they use is just for creator. And then it goes on to say the one who's the self-existent one. But here it shows that the creator for Adam and Eve is becoming very personal. He's seen them fall, and he's going to get personally involved. And it says the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments. All other things he had spoken into existence. He spoke the stars in existence, the, the trees, the field, the animals. And then he formed man and woman. And in here, he could have spoken garments into existence, could he not? 
He could have just said, let there be clothes. And there was clothes. And it was good. Now, he could have done that. But think about this. God took time to sew <laughs> and do all that. And, and this making, it was what kind of clothing? It was, he didn't shear some sheep and cake their cotton and weave it together. He killed an animal. And he skinned the animal. God is doing all this. And he tans the leather hide. He does all this thing. And he, he makes for them these garments. And what's interesting is I'm glad that this translation says garments and not coverings or clothing. Because this word garment is a unique Hebrew word that's used a couple other times in the Bible. It's used in, for Joseph. Remember Joseph had a coat or a garment of many what? Many colors, right? And why did his father give him this coat of many colors? Because he was the special favored chosen son. And there was a lot of favoritism there that was wrong. Okay, we're not talking about that. But think about what that garment meant. It meant my father really loves me. My father thinks I'm special. Same word he's making here for Adam and Eve. <laughs> and when is he making it? After he just blew it. After they just failed him big time. And, and I know I'm speaking to someone by my, besides myself this morning. Many of us in this room have blown it big time. And your heavenly father says, you're still special. I still love you. And I will create a special garment just for you. And then the other time we see this word garment in, in the Pentateuch is to refer to the garment of the high priest. The high priest was the one who served God, who brought the sacrifice, who led the people in worship. And so think about this. This is the same word he's creating garments for Adam and Eve, saying, I still love you, you're my child, and guess what? I want you to serve me. Wow. Have you ever thought, you know, God couldn't use me? God, God doesn't want to let me serve him. I, I've messed up too bad. Hey, he put these special garments on Adam and Eve. He can do the same for you. What amazing grace that God takes two sinners, and rather than giving them the death they deserve, he covers them with a garment as a favored child and a chosen servant. God is good, Amen. His grace is definitely amazing. So these garments were made of skins, which required an animal to die. Now, we don't know what kind of animal it was, but more likely, what would you say it is? What would be the most likely animal? Yeah, a lamb, a sheep, a lamb, right? And so because we see that pattern all throughout the Bible, we see, we see Cain and Abel, which we're going to talk about here in a second. What does Abel sacrifice a lamb? You know, and so where did he get that idea? From mom and dad told him that's what God did for them. We see when Job is going through all his uh, struggles, he sacrifices a lamb. We see the Passover is to, is to kill a lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorpost. And this is what our Jewish friends celebrate all the time. And this is a picture of Jesus Christ, that when we have the blood of Christ on the door of our heart, we will be passed over in judgment. And then you see that every, after that, every year, a lamb was sacrificed at the tabernacle. And the high priest would take the blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle the blood on the altar between the, and on the mercy seat, which was the space that God's glory was between the two angels. And he would sprinkle the blood there, showing that this is a sacrifice for the covering of our sins, pointing to a greater sacrifice. And this is what John the Baptist would point to. When he sees Jesus coming, and he's baptizing hundreds of people, he sees his cousin, who's six months younger than him, says, hey, behold what? The Lamb of God, 
which takes away the sin of the world. So you see all this typology in the Bible. Everything is pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus is the Lamb of God who sheds his blood on the cross for our sins. Just like that innocent animal died to cover Adam's Eve's, Adam and Eve's sins, Jesus Christ dies. And then you know what Jesus does? Hebrews tells us that he takes his blood as our high priest and he goes to the, the Ark of the Covenant that's in heaven and puts his own blood on the mercy seat. Listen to what Hebrews says. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Man, wouldn't you love to have been there in heaven when Jesus did that? That's why Jesus said to Mary, you know, hey, don't cling to me. Which he didn't, some translations say, don't touch me. That's not what he meant. He meant. Don't hold on to me. He said, I've not yet ascended to my father. Because what was he going to do when he ascended to his father? Sprinkle the blood on the altar. So, man, another beautiful picture. And again, notice the angels there because that's important. We'll use that information a little bit. But notice he also says that he did this once for all. There are many uh, Christian churches who, when they partake of communion, they believe it's the actual broken body and blood of Christ all over again. It's called transubstantiation. We don't crucify Jesus every week. We, we, it says that he was crucified once for all. So when we partake of the bread and, and the cup as symbols of the body and blood of Christ, we're not crucifying him afresh. We're remembering that he was already crucified once and for all. So he, this animal dies and then he clothed them, which, which is a symbol, because why did they need to be clothed? But prior to that, it says they were naked and not ashamed, and now all of a sudden they're naked and ashamed. And they're not only ashamed before God, they're ashamed of each other. I, I picture them hiding separately, you know. And then what was their frail attempt to try to cover their own nakedness? What did they do? Fig leaves, which when you cut off a fig leaf, the dying already starts. And it only lasts temporarily, and it doesn't do a good job, and it's not near as good as what God is providing. And this clothing is a picture of being covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so my question for you this morning is, is have, you, have your sins been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus? He died for you. He offers himself and his sacrifice as a free gift. But like all gifts, they can be rejected or they can be received. Have you received the forgiveness of sins that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ and trusting in him as your Lord and your Savior, believing that he died for you, that he was buried, and that he rose again? If not, I hope that today would be your day. You would receive Christ as your Lord. So we move to now to the removal from the garden. The removal from the garden. So the Lord God, again, personal creator here, said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Here we see the plural again. We don't believe in more than one God. We believe in one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that sounds like a lot to absorb, but that's, who would make that up? What, per, what person would make up a religion and come up with the Trinity? But yet that's what we see all throughout nature. Land, sea, and air. Time, matter, space. Past, present, future. We see Trinity of Trinities all over the place with God's thumbprint on his creation, showing who he is, his divine attributes, namely his love and his power, and also even the Trinity is, is done that way. So you see this repeat of he's become like one of us, not because 
like Satan said, that you'll, you'll become exalted. But now it said, why is it that they are like him? Because now they know, and the word know here has two concepts. One is know by experience, right? You can know that, you know, Joe Biden is the president of the United States, or you may have actually met him. There's a difference between just knowing who he is and having met him. And this is also the same word that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. So it's to know in an intimate way. Now they're going to know in an intimate way, that, and in a, a very personal way, the difference between good and evil. This word know also implies discerning, like as in deciding for themselves what is good and evil. So they are going to determine for themselves their own standard of morality. God told them, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, you need to be obedient. They're like, no, 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 we're going to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. This is like what was happening in the book of Judges. Israel kept going through the same cycle over and over again. And it says in chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Who was supposed to be their king? God was. But they, they rejected his authority, and they're like, we want a king like every other nation. But at this time, there's no king in Israel. And here's the part right here. Read this with me in yellow. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That describes the day we live in more than ever. We are hearing this on everything that you need to determine for you what is right for yourself. Oprah Winfrey is one of the most well-known people to say this, and she said this at one of the awards ceremonies. She said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. That's what Adam and Eve were doing. They were speaking their truth. How'd that work out? Was that a powerful tool? One of Oprah's disciples a uh, great financial person, teaches a lot of good principles about being debt-free. She says, I've learned from her, talking about Oprah, really how to stand in one's truth. How if you sim just simply who are who you are, you know you're heavy, you're thin, you're happy, you're sad. If you just speak your truth as it comes into your mind, then that's what people relate to. Whose truth should we be speaking? God's truth. Not our own truth. God's truth. Steve Jobs uh, says, have, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow know that what you truly want to become. How'd that work out for Eve? She followed her heart. There's actually a church not far from here put on their digital sign, follow your heart. I'm like, really? <laughs> Jeremiah 17.9 says, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. I'm, you know, we weren't created that way, but sin makes us that way. You know, there, there's people in this room, probably 100% of you, at one time in your life, life you were in love with someone, and it wasn't too long after, like, wow, what did I ever see in that person? What a loser. I'm so glad that's over. What was going on when you were in the middle of the relationship, though? Your heart was deceiving you. Following your heart can get you in trouble. Following God's word will get you out of trouble. Um, a a, a uh, civil rights activist and new age thinker uh, Lawrence Overmeyer says, dare to find your own truth, despite what others say, then have the courage to live it. That concept is alive today, your own truth, your own truth. Well, Adolf Hitler discovered his own truth, that Jews were the, per the scourge of the planet, and that the human race would evolve faster if we got rid of them. He was just doing his own truth. What if your truth conflicts with my truth? You see, if I say a foot is this long, and you say a foot we're not on the same page. 
And I don't want to buy stuff from you. <laughs> if you're going to be selling it you know, at this length, maybe I should be buying it from you. But we are not going to have the same standard in life if we don't all live by the word of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And see, today the world would say, no, no, you're not the truth, Jesus. I'm going to discover my own truth, what I feel is right for me. So now we, not only did they know now firsthand and try to determine for themselves good and evil, but they were told that if they knew good and evil like God did, they would be better. Knowing evil firsthand doesn't make you a better person. I, I think about this. There are Christians on the planet today in like the Sudan and Iraq who have seen their children murdered right in front of their eyes for being a Christian. Now, does anybody in this room know that? Have you ever experienced that? Do you think that experiencing that would be something to make your life better? No. There's a whole lot of evil that we wish we never had in our lives. We all have feelings of regret. I'm sure just as I say those words, you're like, yeah, mine. And you th whether yours was last year or 10 years or 20 years ago. Can isn't it funny how that even if you're in your 50s and 60s, you can think back to stupid things you did when you were a teenager and still have those sickening feelings like, oh, I wish I never did that. Man, it's just like, do you ever outlive your regrets? We, we all have regrets of just, man, if, if I'd only made this choice instead of that choice. Or I still feel bad to this day that I said that to that person. We all have them. In fact, we also have things we wish we could unknow. Things that you've seen or heard and like you weren't even asking for it. It just appeared. Whether it was in a movie or whatever. And you're like, man, I wish I could get that image out of my head. I remember when I was about 24, 25 years old as a youth pastor. I have teenagers, 16, 17 years old. And somebody came to me and said, hey, you need to talk to this kid over here because he's saying this word. I'm like, what does that word even mean? They knew more. It was a sexual word. And I didn't even know what it meant. I'm like, ignorance is bliss. I wish I never knew what that word meant. And Adam and Eve feel like we're told by Satan, if you know evil, if you know good and evil personally, your life will be better. Man, my life, I, I still wish I didn't have those regrets. I still wish there was things I could unknow and wish I had never known. It doesn't make us better. But the promise of heaven is God will wipe it all away. Every regret you have, the most painful ones, the most guilt-ridden ones, someday God's going to wipe it away. And I don't think he wipes your memory, but he wipes away the feeling of it. Everything that you knew, <laughs> that you wish you didn't know, God will wipe away the feeling that comes with that. And that's one of the things I'm looking forward to in heaven is getting over Gary <laughs> and being tired of Gary just putting up with this guy right here. And that someday I won't be, have that propensity to sin and, be, and always be a struggle. But in heaven, all that will be wiped away with all the regrets. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also, take also. Wait a minute. What's he referring to? Back when the first time they reached out and they took of the fruit. He said, now we don't want them taken again of the, of the other tree, the tree of life. He says, here's the reason why. Because we don't want them to live forever in that state. In that state. If Adam and Eve, and I don't understand how all, all why this works this way. But the way we read this passage here is that they took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and they died spiritually. If they take of the tree of life, they will be for eternally forever sinners. And God says, no, no, we don't want that to happen. 
And here it's amazing that God is protecting them from their own choices. Even in their banishment, God is demonstrating his love, loving protection for his people to prevent another disastrous decision. You see, you, someone's probably saying, and it's a good question, why didn't God prevent it in the first place? Well, he wanted them to have free will. And God does give you free will, but sometimes God, and thank him for this, he steps in in his sovereignty, and he even protects you from yourself. There's been times, I know you can relate this, where I've attempted to do something bad, and I couldn't even do it because something was happening against me. And it, remember one of um, Abraham encountered one of the, the kings who wanted to take Sarah as in, her, in, the, uh, in his harem, and God prevented him. So God, thank him so much that sometimes he steps in and keeps you from doing stuff you want to do. And so here, he's like, we're not going to let them make this same fatal choice again. This would be an eternal disastrous consequence if we don't step in. So therefore, God sent him out, sent Adam and Eve out, okay, from the garden. Now watch this, to work the ground from which he was taken. Wait a minute. In some translations, this doesn't read too well because in Hebrew, it doesn't translate English very well. It's not saying Adam has to be outside the garden, but he has to work the garden inside. That's not what it's saying. Here's a better translation of this from the contemporary English version. So the Lord God sent them out of the garden where they would have to work the ground from which the man had been made. Okay, so that pluperfect tense isn't even in Hebrew, but we have it in English, so that's why it's difficult to translate. Now, the first time it says God sent them out, and now look what it says here. He drove them out. I don't want to read too much into this, but I picture Adam and Eve. God says, okay, y'all need to go. And they're weeping and they're crying and they're like, no, Lord, we want to be here with you. It's like, you need to go. And then they don't go. He's like, okay, let's go. And he has to actually drive them like you drive cattle. He has to drive them out. This same word is interesting because it's the same word for divorce. When when someone packs your bags and leaves them on the porch and they kick you out, okay? And then when, when a man or a wife divorce their husband and they kick them out of the house, that's what this word is here. This is a spiritual divorce going on here. And you know, if you, for those of you in the room who've been through a divorce, you know how painful it is. Imagine how much more painful it is to be divorced from God. They were in a beautiful paradise. And now because they want to determine for themselves their own truth, they wanted to be in control of what's right and wrong. God says, okay, you have to go. And so they went out to the east of the Garden of Eden. Now think about this. They go out east, and it's interesting how many, that, how many times in the Bible east is significant. So that means that every evening when the sun set, Adam and Eve looked back on the garden. Yeah, we used to live there. We used to live that direction. But the good news is every morning when the sun came up, they looked forward to where they were going. So God, even in, poetically, shows some, a lot of principles there. And it says, and, and he placed the cherubim. Now, what do you know about Hebrew? I am means it's what? It's plural. You know, if you look up pictures of this, it always has an angel with the sword, one angel. But it tells us right there it's plural. There's cherubim, probably two, and I'll show you why. Could have been more, but probably two. And then there's a flaming sword that turned every way. And again, that could be a picture of the wheel within a wheel. Don't know for sure. Um, but that's Ezekiel reference there. You can look it up later. And so they were guarding the way, saying, hey, you can't come back in and take of the tree of life. And this sounds like a harsh thing, but why is God doing it? He's because 
I plan on saving your soul. I don't want you to come back in here and be eternally lost by making your stupid decision permanent. So God is, this is a thing of protection, not, not part of the punishment. So let's look at carefully at the imagery of what would have been two angels and guarding the tree of life. Here's one picture of it right here. So Adam and Eve, they've sinned, they've failed, their lives are broken and busted. They feel like the New York Yankees this morning, okay? And so they are no chance, and, and so this path is being, back into the garden is being guarded by two angels and a flaming sword, and so it's for their protection. And then Ezekiel talks about the throne of God, and there's the wheel within a wheel, and what is on either side of the throne of God? These cherubim, okay? And of course, and a rainbow, which is the proper sign for that in, in the biblical sense. And so also it says here in Ezekiel, the heads of the cherubim there appeared above them like a sapphire in appearance like a thr around the throne. And the glory of God went up the, the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So you see here, Two angels, again, let's keep thinking about this imagery here. So then, the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the glory of God resided between what? Two angels. And there, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the lamb for the sacrifice of sin. And so, where was the Ark of the Covenant? It was inside what? The tabernacle. Now, keep that in mind. The temple and the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the temporary... Uh, one, when they traveled around and they built a permanent temple. So temple, tabernacle, the Holy of Holies is where this is at. And so think about this. These same, same two angels, I don't, I'm not saying it's the same two angels by name everywhere you go. Could have been, maybe not. But the idea of two angels being there at the garden and the two angels being in heaven, the two angels being around the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And yet, then we fast forward to the resurrection of Christ. When Mary comes to the, to the tomb, who is there? two angels. You see the picture? He's saying he was guarding the tree of life in the garden with two angels. And now the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is the tree of life. And basically you could picture these same two angels there because it says they were seated on either side. And that's the picture that he's trying to create here. So two angels at the garden were there to block access to the tree of life to prevent an eternal sinful state. And then there's two angels at the garden tomb were there to reveal access to the tree of life and then provide, not prevent, an eternal sinless state. Isn't that amazing? The Word of God is so powerful. You know, it, it's interesting that, that as each writer's writing, the Holy Spirit's orchestrating the whole thing so that all of it fits and the imagery fits so perfectly. Revelation 21.3 says, and I, we can take this fast forward now, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place, what's the dwelling place of God? The tabernacle of God is with men. So the tree of life where God was with men, and now they're kicked out, right? And then you see them fast forward to Revelation. The Bible begins in a garden. The Bible ends in a garden. And guess what? The tree of life, the glory of God is restored. And I wouldn't be surprised to see if there was two angels there. We, we know that there's angels all around the throne of heaven in Revelation as well. So let's move to the next one here. Responding to the rebellion. Responding to the rebellion. It says, now Adam knew, and that means in an intimate way, his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. 
Now that name Cain is interesting because some people say it's like referring to the area that they were at. And so it's like, my son is here. The man is here. And watch what she says. She says, I have gotten a man, and the article could be there, the man, from the help of the Lord. What is she referring to? Well, God had told them in chapter 3 earlier that I'm going to bring redemption, and you're going to have the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. So salvation's coming. And so Eve thought, I believe, many scholars believe that Eve thought she just gave birth to the Messiah. This is the guy who's going to crush the serpent. This is the guy that's going to bring uh, paradise back to us all. Of course, we know that, if, spoiler alert, he wasn't it. <laughs> and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Those two vocations are super important. One is taking care of what God created, and one is making things happen. And that's the contrast you'll see in their sacrifice there. And in the course of time, we don't know how much time. Okay? Obviously, what's going to happen in the verses to follow, it could have been 30 years later. It could have been 50 years later. And again, Adam lived for 930 years. So this could have been a long time later. We don't know. In fact, we know that it's enough later to where the world has been populated, which brings up the, the infamous question, where did Cain get his sister or get his wife? It was one of his sisters. I know that sounds weird, but it wasn't forbidden back then, and it wasn't genetically a problem back then like it is today, you know, with inbreeding. So it wasn't a problem for Adam and Eve to have lots of brothers and lots of sisters and them to intermarry. Sounds weird, but it, it's not a problem here. But so we don't know how much time passed, but Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Okay? Now, something I realized this week as I was reading a, a good commentary is... If he brought it to the Lord, where's the last time his family saw the Lord? I'm wondering if he went back to the two angels, not trying to get in. Hey, keep your sword away. I just want to put this sacrifice right here between the two angels, just like the sacrifice is between the two angels on the Ark of the Covenant. Man, wouldn't that, that would make sense, right? But again, we don't know for sure. Not trying to be dogmatic on that. But what did he bring? He brought fruit. Look what I've grown. Look what I did. See, I planted this tree. I've um, grafted this with this one, created a new type of fruit. I've done all kinds of great things. Look what my harvest, look what I've brought. And God doesn't respect it. We'll see here in a second. Abel brought it, the firstborn, not just any lamb, but the firstborn lamb. Why is that important? Because that's a picture of Christ. God's only son, his firstborn, his, his son, true son. All the rest of us are adopted sons. So he brings the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. Now, we had, the guys did an amazing job of cooking barbecue a couple weeks ago. And uh, if you're good at barbecue like Manuel is, you save some of the fat drippings, right? And you make your own sauce and all that stuff. And, and damn, that, that's what makes the brisket so good because it's so juicy and all that stuff. And a lot of times when people made sacrifices, they would put the, the quarters in there, but they'd keep the fat for themselves. Abel gave us all. He gave the very best to God. Even the, the icing on the cake, if you will. He gave the fat portions as well when he gave a sacrifice. So the Lord had regard for Abel, and this word end is so important, and his offering. Regard, respect, honor. He said, Abel, good job. I like your heart, and I like what you've brought. There's two factors in worship. Your heart 
and how you do it or what you do with it. In, um, in John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And she's all confused that which mountain should we worship at? And Jesus says this to her. He says, true worshipers, everybody say true worshipers. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You see, there's a lot of false worship going on this morning around the world. And some people don't even know it. Okay, I'm not trying to knock every other church. Thank the Lord there's millions and billions of true worshipers going on this morning. Okay, But Jesus is making a distinction that there's true worshipers and false worshipers. But what makes the difference is in spirit and in truth. Your heart has to be in the right place and you have to do it the right way. Singing is a form of worship, right? So you guys did a good job of singing earlier this morning. What if we're singing with all our heart and we're really worshiping God with it, but the lyrics of the song are just wrong, not even biblical? God says that's not in truth. I appreciate your spirit, but that's not in truth. What if we sing songs that are just perfectly biblical, they glorify Jesus Christ, they teach in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs just like the scripture tells us to do, but we're just singing it because we're singing it. It's on this same song 20 times. Is that worship? Well, I'm saying the right words. Yeah, but your heart's not in it. You see, with Abel, God had respect to him and his sacrifice. The, the, how we do it and with what spirit we do it is important. But for Cain and his offering, no regard. So some people say, well, you know, how do you know it was supposed to be a sacrifice? How was he supposed to know? Well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't know it was supposed to be a lamb. You know, even though it was, I think it's pretty clear. But God says, I don't even respect your heart. I have no respect for you or your offering. So even if there, there could have been possible that Cain said, oops, I didn't know. You know, you didn't want a vegan sacrifice. You wanted barbecue. I understand. Okay. So I, I will go back and get the right sacrifice. Sorry, my bad. And I think all, everything would have been good. But Cain, it wasn't about the sacrifice. It was about his heart. He was doing it pride. And this story represents someone coming to God with all their trust in the blood of the lamb. And someone else coming to God saying, hey, God, look at me. I'm good. Look at all the good things I've done. In fact, let me give you something, God, that you need. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Very angry in his heart and his outward appearance. You ever seen people are mad and you can tell it? <laughs> or you may be one of those people that you just can't hide your feelings. This is Cain. He's, gonna, he's mad, and everybody's going to pay for it. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? That is a great question. Next time you get angry about something, maybe with your spouse, maybe at your kids, it's really good to ask yourself, what? Why? Why? Am I mad because this is wrong, or am I mad because I'm trying to control the situation and it's not going my way? And then he says, and why has your face fallen? Not only are you angry on the inside, why are you just letting it affect your behavior? Why does it affect the way you appear, the way you appear and the way you treat others? Why are you doing these two things? So, when we have sinful emotions, we need to examine why they are there and why we allow them to affect our outward behavior. You see, what does Paul say? Be angry and sin not. It's possible to be angry and have an internal reaction, but not to let it affect your behavior. You see, there's a difference between becoming mad and being mad and hitting somebody. Being mad and then saying expletive. Being mad and just walking out or pouting, you know. It's funny, you see two-year-olds pout, they don't get what they want at the store, and they're like, it's sickening when you see a 42-year-old do it. 
It's, it's bad. But they do it. You'll see people who pout, and they walk around, and they want people to say, hey, what's wrong? Nothing. That's the biggest lie on the planet right there, you know? Cain was being this. He's brooding, and his heart is not right. You know, Job was angry with God. God, why are you letting all this happen to me? You know, but he, here's the difference. Job kept on talking to God, kept on talking to God. And he talked all the way through it. And finally he saw, okay, you're the great one. I am not. Jonah was angry with God. Remember, he wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He preached the shortest sermon in the world, like one sentence. This place will be destroyed in 40 days. And they're like, no, we repent. And God spared their lives. And Jonah was mad about it. So God, he goes out there to watch and see what's going to happen to the city. And it's hot out there. And God causes a gourd or a plant to grow up, a vine to grow up over him so he'd have some shade. But then the next day, God sends a worm to the root of the gourd and it kills it so it shrivels up. And Jonah's mad about the gourd. God's like, wait a minute. I'm about to kill 175,000 people. And you're, you're like, yeah, go God. And then I... I kill a plant and you're all upset. You know, and you can see the obvious parallels with that. But did Jonah repent? The chapter ends really mysteriously with Jonah just, you know, being upset. And it ends. But how do we know what happened to Jonah unless he did? I believe Jonah did repent, wrote the book. But he left it that way because all of us are Jonah. All of us have sinned against God and we can be mad about it. Or we can repent. The choice is yours. And that's why Jonah left it that way. Judas, he was disillusioned with Jesus. You could say mad at Jesus. He thought Jesus was going to come in and kick out the Romans and lower our taxes and set us all free. And he doesn't do it. So he sees this as happening. So he sells Jesus. But then he has the opportunity to repent. But instead he just gets mad and pouts. And worse, he hangs himself. And so you see different ways people can react with their anger. God makes it really clear. This is such a simplistic but yet profound statement. He says, if you do well, which what would be doing well right now? Go back and make it right. Go get a lamb. No, go sacrifice what I asked you to sacrifice. Get your heart right so I can honor you and your sacrifice. So if you do that, will you not be accepted? Do you realize God is laying it out here saying, Cain, okay, you messed up. Just go, let's make it right, and I'll accept you just like I did your brother. It'll be fine. Why would, why would Cain not do that? It would mean admitting his brother's right. I wouldn't be like my little brother. I'm smarter than he is. I ain't doing that. And this is what he, you see pride overwhelm the heart of Cain. God is giving Cain a check, second chance. That's what he means by if you do well, to repent and do the offering again. So why did he not take it? Why do people not trust in Christ as Savior? Why do people do the sins they do and like Adam and Eve blame one another? It's pride. It's pride. Obadiah chapter, Obadiah verse 3 says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. And that's what happens to all of us. If we're not careful to humble ourselves, Cain was unwilling, unwilling to humble himself. It's not that he couldn't. It wasn't that the opportunity wasn't there. It was clearly there. When he did not deserve a second chance, God graciously gave him one. He says, so if you do not do well, if you choose to keep pouting, Cain, you keep staying angry, letting everybody know by your face, sin is crouching at the door. Now, if you lived back in the days in the wilderness, you know, 
animals knew you lived inside, <laughs> and they see you walk out every morning, and sometimes wild animals would crouch at the door, and the first person to walk out the door, <laughs> breakfast, you know? And what's interesting about this word here, sin is crouching the door, and its desire, its wanting to eat you, is contrary to you. It's the same word that God told Eve, your desire shall be towards your husband. We thought that, oh, well, that's a good thing. Hey, Adam, you're hot, you're hot buddy. <laughs> you know? And she thought that was the desire. No, no, the desire to pounce on him and control him is what it's talking about. And then, of course, the man has his own curses and failures in leadership too. But sin is crouching at the door. You think you're in control right now, Cain. You think that you're going to hold on to your anger and everything's going to be fine. No, you're about to have the, this little sin is about to take you over. He said, but here's what you need to do. You must rule over it. What was Cain's sin? Pride and anger. What do you have to do with those two? Control them. You will never eliminate them. Amen? You will never, until you are resurrected in the new resurrection in eternal, eternity, you will deal with pride. You will deal with anger. What you must do is rule over them. Just like rule over the animals and have dominion, he told his dad. He said, you need to take care of these animals in your own life. So Cain spoke to Abel. Now, don't fly past that. God just got done tell, giving him the most incredible offer of a second chance, and Cain spoke to Abel. It should have said Cain spoke to God. Yes, God, you're right. I am so sorry. But he's stuck. He's stuck in his, holding on to his anger. Cain, he spoke to Abel instead of his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. First murder in the Bible right there. Man, your sin will take you farther than you plan. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. I don't think Cain thought, when I get this sacrifice wrong, I ain't fixing it, that days later he would kill his brother. Maybe the same day. Sin will take us really, really bad places. So then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? You, you know that God knows, right? God is really good at asking rhetorical questions to get them thinking about he wants a mental picture in Cain's mind of his bloody brother on the ground. Think about it. Where's your brother right now? Back in the field, dead. Your brother. Your parent's second child. You, maybe second, his other child. You, you, I want you to see this. You know it's good for us to see our sin and to get a personal picture. I think if we will personalize our sin, we might not be as likely to repeat it. And of course, a, Cain now goes from murder to lying. I do not know. Okay? Very similar to David murders Uriah, then tries to cover it up. But then he says this snarky remark, what, my, brother, my brother's keeper? Can you imagine being that facetious with God, that you're going to talk to God like that? And yet, why God doesn't make him an inkblot on the carpet, I don't know. He deserved it, right? He's talking back to God like this. You ever had your kids talk back like this? <laughs> yeah. So he says, I'm my brother's keeper. That also is a sarcastic smack at Abel, who's dead. What was Abel's occupation? He was a keeper of the sheep. Oh, oh what am I, his shepherd? I'm going to keep him like a little lamb? Cain has no idea what he's saying. Yes, yes, you are, exactly. That's exactly what you are. Did you know that we are responsible for one another? If you are part of Revolution Church, you are not just called to have a relationship with God. You are called to be your brother's keeper. You are called to, see, to be your sister's keeper. 
We are responsible for one another. We are sheep in a flock. And our shepherd says, take care of each other. Take care of each other. Just like Jesus, when he's resurrected, he tells Peter three times, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. Tend for my sheep. You could say, well, whether they go to church or not, that's none of my business. No, it is your business. When someone is missing, and you can look around the room and say, hey, so-and-so, they sit there normally. Don't they? Where, are they? Where are they? It is on us. I mean, Pastor Stan can do this. Gary can do this, and we do. But what do you think means more if Pastor Gary calls you and says, hey, I missed you in church today? And you're like, oh, yeah, now I feel guilty. But what about one of you call them and say, hey, I missed you today. You everything okay? Can I do anything for you? Man, I want to have that kind of church. Who wants that kind of church, amen? That's what we want to be. That's what we need to be. And you guys are good at it. I'm not scolding you, okay? I'm just saying this because we need to keep doing this. We need to be our brother's keeper. And here's the uh, unashamed plug here. That's what life groups are about. That's why everybody needs to be a part of a life group because this is where the keeping takes place. This is where the soul care takes place. This is where the accountability, the prayer, the love. And those of you who are in life groups, you know this. You you, and I'm not blaming you for this. Sometimes you look forward to life group more than you do church, and that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing to be a part of a loving, caring place where we are our brothers and our sisters keeper. So he asks another question. What have you done? Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what he asked Adam and Eve? What did you do? Who told you? Where are you? What have you done? And he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's an interesting image. You see that our prayers are like candles lit and and incense burning that go up to God and he breathes it in. God's using what's called an anthropomorphism. He's using things that man can relate to to describe how he feels about these things. And so it goes on to say, and now you are cursed from the ground. It's really interesting. Watch what he does here and how this parallels. Adam's curse was there's going to be thorns and thistles. It's going to be difficult. But with Cain, he says, no, now for you it's going to be impossible. Your farming is going to go nowhere. Your dad's having a hard time, but he's getting something. You're not going to get anything. Look at this. He says, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You're going to try farming, and you just need to figure out a different occupation. Because, And think about that. God takes away the thing he was most proud of. He was so proud of his fruits and vegetables, you know, that he brought this vegan diet. And God says, man, I wanted barbecue, but you're bringing me this junk. No, that's not what it was. But he was so proud of what it was. And, and, that, and God says, you're not even going to have any success in that area. Man, be careful that you don't sin against God to where he takes away that one thing you love most. In fact, that could be the most loving thing he would do for you. If, you, if it becomes an idol in your life, your, your career, your spouse, your child, the one that you're so proud of, if it becomes an idol, God has a loving way of removing that from your life. He said, you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Forget farming. You're just going to have to go out there. So now watch this. Adam, he can't settle in Eden. But look at this. Cain's multiplied. He can't settle anywhere. Do you see how the curse is being exponentially increased for Cain because of his rebellion? And Cain said to the Lord, again, another disrespectful remark. My punishment is greater than I can bear. This is not fair, God, which means God's unfair, and he's, now he's questioning God's character. Have you ever been there? I, I was there. I remember years ago, I, think I was about 31, and uh, 
maybe 32, I'm not sure. Um, and life was falling apart. And I remember pounding my fist on the wall saying, God, why do you hate me? I felt like my punishment, which I deserved punishment, but I felt like the punishment God was giving me was far more than I deserved. Now I look back and I know it was far less. God was merciful. He, he had every right to strike me dead. He has every right to strike Cain dead. And Cain's saying, oh, this is more than I can bear. You know you're not truly repentant when you think that your consequences are more than you can bear. You say, you, you know, you, maybe you sinned against your spouse and they won't let it go. And I'm like, okay, I let it go. Man, you said you forgive me. Come on, this is more than I deserve. No, no, it's not. It's not. Now, it's not their job to punish you. It's God's. But even if God is using their bitterness towards you to, to make you realize how severe your sin was, we dabble around with sin like, oh, it's no big deal. And God says, no, it hurts my heart. It hurts other people's hearts. Cain, I'm letting you live, and, you're gonna, and your brother's dead. Your mom and dad are weeping, and you're allowed to live, and you say it's greater than you can bear? Come on, man. But isn't that what sin does? It makes us blind. where We're not even seeing things straight. We're not even being halfway logical. He says, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. I wanted to be a farmer. Now I can't be a farmer anymore. No grief about it. It's all about him, isn't it? Man, sin makes us selfish. He says, and from your face I shall be hidden. Oh, oh wait a minute. Farming first, relationship with God second. Ooh. Career first, church second. You see what Cain's doing here? He, he, got, he has everything in the wrong order. Then, then the Lord said to him, not so. <laughs> and I kind of think God used his God voice. Not so. You know, and then the, the heavens thundered or whatever. And, uh, it says, and he says, I'm going to make a pronouncement right now. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance should be taken on him sevenfold. This guy will wish he never lived. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. I have no idea what it is. And if you know someone who knows, they don't know. Okay, I can just tell you right now, we, nobody knows what the mark of Cain is. Again, I'll, I'll hear what you have to say, and maybe you do know, but I doubt it. I, I read for this for a long time trying to find out what the mark of Cain is, and all I could figure, the closest thing was it was the Dallas Cowboys star on his head. I don't know. But anyway, um, but think about the mercy of God that he shows here. Cain deserves the death penalty, right? Why is he not dying? God lets him live. I mean, he actually lets him live. And if God killed him, Cain would have gone to hell. But I believe God is letting Cain live to give him time to repent so that he will go to heaven. We don't know whether he did or didn't. I would not be surprised with the amazing grace of God that Cain will be in heaven. And you say, well, he, he doesn't deserve that. Hey, welcome to the club. None of us do. And God not only doesn't kill him, but he tells everybody else in the world, you can't kill him. Isn't it? It's just amazing. That from the, you go from this great nightmare in the Garden of Eden to this. And it's like when I was cleaning the garage, having a good time with Adrian, and then pfft, he's gone. But I thank the Lord that that story didn't end that way. I found him at the next-door neighbor's house and all that stuff. And, uh, and this story doesn't end bad either. There's salvation for Cain, for Abel, for Adam, for Eve, for, for Gary, for every single one of us. In Ephesians 1.7, it says, In him, in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, we have redemption, how? Through his blood. Now, there's a lot of people today, so-called Christians, who don't like the whole talk about blood and death. And, you know, that's, that's child sacrifice. How can God, that's, that's cosmic, you know, child abuse and all that stuff like that. 
Well, if you have a God who says, oh, you're forgiven, is that just? Imagine someone does something horrific to one of your children, and the police catch them, and you have your day in court, and you're praying that this person gets justice because you've lost your child now. And the judge says, hey, uh, Joe, are you sorry for what you've done? Yeah, Your Honor, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Okay, no problem. You're forgiven. Would not everybody be outraged? Because a just judge punishes sin. And God has to be a just judge. And so therefore, but God is also a loving God. He doesn't want you to suffer from your sin. So what he does is Jesus says, Father, I will take their punishment. And Jesus goes to the cross and sheds his blood and dies for us. Now, if you believe in a God that doesn't do that, let me ask you, what has your God done to prove his love for you? What has he done? Our God has given his own life, gave his own son who suffered and, and died eternally for us. Romans 10.9 says, if you, and I want you to take this personally this morning, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he was the one in the garden creating everything, doing everything, he made you, he is the one in charge of your life, and if you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, Jesus died for your sins, he was buried. He rose again. If you will believe those two things, that he, I, he's my Lord, he's my Savior, what does it say right there? You will be saved. And here's why. It says in verse 10, for with your heart you believe and you're justified. And with the mouth you confess Christ as Lord and you are saved. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes right now if you would. And we're going to enter into a time of prayer right now, as I kind of announced at the beginning. So if those people, Pastor Stan and, um, and Miss Shelley, you'll come over here to my left, and Greg and Linda to my right, and, and also oh, Ashley too. Yes, good. If you would like someone to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life right now, or maybe you want to know more about becoming a Christian, or maybe you need just prayers for your job, Maybe you have a child that's away from the Lord you want prayer for. Anything at all, you can come. One of these brothers and sisters in Christ would love to pray with you. You can come now as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you that you were willing to give a second chance to even Cain. So, Father, you give second chances and third chances and fourth chances and millionth chances to us because you are so gracious. You are so loving. You're so kind. So, Father, right now as we enter into a time of prayer, I pray that we as a church would seek your face, that you haven't driven us away from your face. You, you've made it possible for us to see you and to know you through Christ. So, Father, help us to have hearts of repentance this morning, hearts that seek you and love you and enjoy our relationship with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good. Amen. All right. If you made a decision to trust Christ today, there's my cell phone number. I'd love to talk to you about your next steps as a new child of God and talk to you about your decision. Or maybe you have questions and want to know more about Jesus. Feel free to call me or text me anytime. And maybe you know someone who would benefit from this Genesis series. Please think about praying for them and inviting them to join you next week. Um, and and, and they, maybe they could be here to learn what we're learning here together. 
There's also a reading app on the Uversion called Origins that many of us are doing. I think there's about 29 people doing this. And so if you want that, you can text me or you can just look on Uversion, and it's been an excellent reading plan. We're going to do question and answer session time right now. If you have a question, uh, Amanda, would you like to help me with this? If you have a question, you can text that in uh, right now. Or if you'd rather just raise your hand, you definitely could do that. Looks like we have one question already in the loop, in the queue, as the Europeans say. All right, here you go. Yes. Um, when Abel died, was he the first person in Abraham's bosom or the non-burning side of Sheol? Or would he have gone straight to heaven since God's promise hadn't been given to Abraham yet? If it was Sheol, how confused must he have been to just be in the empty place all by himself for years? Wow, great question. So, if... If, if eternity is a continuum, but we're on a linear path, when you go out into eternity, everything is already there. <laughs> I, and I, I really, I'm, if I was great at metaphysics, I could probably explain that better in more technical terms. But even though Abraham hadn't existed yet, I believe that there was a place like that, that there was a paradise. And I don't believe it was the eternal state of heaven that we know of in Revelation, so I do believe that he went to a good place, okay? But then we know that when Christ rose from the dead, it says he went and led captivity captive. He went down into the part, lower parts of the earth and led all the believers out of Abraham's bosom side or the arms of Abraham, put it in a more, more modern term, and led them captive. So, and would he be there alone? No, the presence of God would be there. Um, so he wouldn't be alone in that sense. But that physically, maybe so. The first person in, in Abel... Yeah, there's a meme about that as Kermit the Frog like sitting there going, <laughs> waiting for the first person. He's the first person in heaven waiting for others to come. But anyway, any other questions there? Yes. What does the serpent's offspring refer to in Genesis 3.15? Okay, so um, that would be all of the, because so the Bible talks about two lines of people. You got the line of the children of God and the children of men. And, of course, Jesus breaks it up, and, you know, there's children of Satan and children of God. And you see those two lines all throughout history. And so it's representing everything that falls under the family of Satan. And so the eventual seed would be Satan himself, you know, uh, not that he's the seed of the serpent, but because of that, the, the picture there is that Satan's head will be crushed. And in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you see Jesus praying in the garden. And this is not in the Bible, but it's a great picture but it shows Jesus, you know, wrestling in prayer all night long that if it, if it were possible, let this cup pass. But then when he feels, when he senses from God that, no, I'm going to go forward with this, he gets up and with boldness, and like Isaiah says, with his face like flint, he goes forward. And in the movie, it shows a snake who's been trying to talk him out of it. He crushes his head. So that's a great picture there. Again, we don't know that that actually happened. But if you think about it, it says that the, the serpent would bruise his heel. Jesus was temporarily hurt for a while, but then Satan was ultimately hurt with a fatal blow to his head. And so it's talking about the figure of Satan. There may be more to it than that. Than I don't know. Brother Stan, do you have anything to add to that one? Okay, that's a tough one. <laughs> All right. Okay. If mankind was made in God's image, why did Adam and Eve sin? Did Adam and Eve have a sin nature before the fall? Where did our sin nature come from? Good, really good question. Good theological question. So Adam and Eve were made innocent, not made perfect. 
Okay? There's a difference between being perfect and innocent. If you make something perfect, it has no potential for sin. But they were made innocent, and therefore they were given a choice. And there is no true love without choice. Okay? If you make your wife marry you, and you force her into that relationship, and you know, a shotgun wedding or whatever, how is that true love? But if they choose to love you and give their life to you, that's different. So God had to give Adam and Eve choice, but with choice, there's the risk of failure. And you say, well, why would God make people if you knew they're going to sin? Because God knows everything. Well, why did you have children? I mean, any one of your kids could go off the rails and be the worst kid on the planet. But you knew that when you were making that child. At least I hope you should have known it. Okay? And so, therefore, you took the same risk God did, but yet people will point fingers at God saying he shouldn't have done that, but we do the same thing all the time. You, you have children. You know that there's a risk. They may grow up and be the best child in the world, and you'll be so glad I had this child. And then, but you know what? Even the one who rebels against you, you still love them, right? So, and you would sacrifice, do anything for them. All right. Um, one last good question. Yeah. One last question. Yeah. Do we still have free will in heaven since we stop sinning? No. That's, that's a great question. Once you die, you die in Christ, and you're in Christ, and so it says he will keep that which you've committed unto him against that day. Christ keeps your commitment. So the angels had their decisions cemented or made permanent when they made them with no chance of redemption. So all the angels, the two-thirds that stayed with God, stay with God for all eternity. The one-third that rebelled are in, it will be punished for all eternity, but you're given a choice. But once you die, that, that, just like the angels, your decisions made permanent then. And so if, you, if you're in Christ, you'll be in Christ for eternity. If you're not, it says that in Hebrews, it says, it's a point unto man once to die and after this to judgment. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chances after death. You have your chance here and now to do that. All right, thank you very much. Um, Charles, would you do me a favor? Would you could take that basket and go to the front door? I, somehow, we didn't communicate clearly. We want you to take several of these and pass them out if all possible. I know some of you just got one, but we want you to take several if you could. So if you'll meet people by, as they go out the door, that'd be great. Hey, let's stand and um, let's read this verse of Scripture as a benediction as we're dismissed. All right. Lead, read together nice and loud in honor and praise to the Lord. Second Thessalonians 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.